You are listening to In the Mouth of Dorkness. This is Jerry Giangelo from Arctic, and you are listening to the best podcast this side of the universe. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Lisa Gullickson, Wife Dork. What's up, Lisa? Hey, Brad. How's it going? I'm doing great. So happy to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Especially considering that this conversation that we had here happened way back when in January when we were attending the Sundance Film Festival. Feels like so long ago. <laughs> yes. January feels like 20 years ago, let alone just a few months. So many films ago. So many films ago. So many chat casts ago. We launched this series with our Sundance episodes. Our very first episode was with Alexander Felipe, the director of Memory uh, in that the Chessburster alien film. Oh, that was such a great conversation. Such a great conversation. And we're actually going to be going to Fantastic Fest here tomorrow. We're packing as we're chatting, actually. Yep. And Memory is going to be playing at Fantastic Fest. How cool is that? Super fun. Super now, fun. I may just see it again. Uh, I'm definitely going to see it again. Uh, the reason we're bringing you this chat finally so many months after Sundance is because Irene Taylor Brodsky, who we'll be talking to, her film Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements, just opened in theaters and is playing locally. So check those listings. And it will be coming to HBO in the not-too-distant future. Lisa. Yes. You loved this doc. I super loved this doc. It's a really intimate documentary Uh it's about Irene's actual family. Her son, Jonas, was born deaf. Uh, he received co cochlear implants when he was four years old. And her parents um, also mm. are deaf. And so she has this unique look at what it was like to be deaf in the 40s and the 50s. Versus what it's like to be deaf today. And I think that this is uh, something that we should really be thinking about. Yeah, it's a cultural conversation that I had never really considered. And it is a fascinating, intimate look. A real inside story that at times even feels like, should, should I be seeing these images? Should I be hearing these thoughts? Uh, but of course, because Irene Taylor Brodsky has built a career out of deep dives into her own families and into her subjects. Uh, she is just very giving with her life and her art. And so is her family. The candidness that you get from her parents is so precious. And of course her son is growing up in yeah. the times that we are. So he is totally comfortable being on camera at his best, at his worst, all the times in between. It's, yeah. it's, a total privilege to get to have a little peek into this family. For sure. Uh, this conversation is also interesting because Lisa and I had it on the phone while we were on the side of a busy street <laughs> in Park City. It was one of those things where, you know, you're rushing from screening to screening, interview to interview, and suddenly you're like, Irene has 15 minutes. Can you talk to her right now? And we were in mid 
transit on our feet and we just squatted in a parking lot and uh, recorded it from one phone to another phone. Yeah, they were like two Beatles mating, <laughs> just end to end, capturing this magic. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, I've listened to the audio quality. It's not terrible. It's a little different than some of our uh, other shows, but I think you'll totally get into it. And the conversation is really, really cool. Uh, so, yeah, let's leave it at that. And we will meet you on the other side of the chat. Hi, Irene. How are you today? Hey, Brad. How are you? Thanks I'm... Oh, thank you for having a conversation with us. Uh, you're actually speaking to me and my co-host, Lisa. And uh, we're really excited to talk about it because we thoroughly enjoyed the screening at Sundance uh, earlier in the week. Uh, we found the film profoundly moving. Oh, well, that's, that's good to hear. I'm really glad. Thank you. So um, our first question is about the structure of the piece, um, Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements, um, tells the story of, your, of course, your father, your son, and then Beethoven and how Beethoven dealt with um, deafness and expressing his deafness through music. When did this structure start revealing itself to you? I started making Moonlight Sonata thinking it was a film about an 11-year-old boy, my son, learning how to play a song written by a composer as he was going deaf. My son's deaf, I thought there was a beautiful synergy there, a good narrative vehicle. It wasn't until I started filming that I realized my father's story and what was happening to him as he was grappling with the loss of his aging mm -hmm. was really a third component. And it's really a coincidence here of three centuries of deaf people and three movements of a famous sonata. And so three started to become a real theme in the film. And so I'd say it was about halfway through the filming of our of our story that we realized we were dealing with three movements of a story. So obviously this is a very intimate part of your life. There's lots of, you know, videos of your son as he's growing up. At what point were you recording this with the intentionality of creating this final product versus just kind of documenting your life as your mother for yourself? Mm. I think because my family is filled with obsessive documentarians and I've already made another feature-length film on mm. my family that was at Sundance in 2007, it's hard for me to tease those two things out. I think for me, making films and my personal endeavor are sort of one and the same. Even though the majority of the films I've made have nothing to do with my family, there's always a very personal component to them where I feel personally motivated. So I think that in this film, the family life and the film life, just there were no boundaries, which made it very difficult. Mm -hmm. But we sort of accepted it and, and embraced it, really. You just had to, because it was... It was sort of an impossible task. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a moment. You know, talking about the difficulties. Why? Why, why did the? Why did that increase? So, when you're making a film, I think about people who are closest to you. Uh, you want to protect them, and at times, and you want to protect yourself in a way, and you want to do things that preserve your relationship with them, not threaten your relationship with them. But, you know, when you're making a good documentary, you have to be ruthless about including everything to get an honest story. 
And so there were moments where the camera was on and not everyone was happy about that. Mm -hmm. And I was very uncomfortable. There's three or four scenes in the film where it was very hard for me to film what I was filming, but I did it. And uh, so I think that was the hard part. Another, another difficult part, I think if you talk to my director of photography and my producer who did our field sound, was that they sometimes didn't know how far to push access and to push a situation or to push an interview because they were dealing with their director's son and they didn't want to uh, overstep their bounds. But I told them, you treat, this, you treat this film like you would any other. If you feel that you need to push and prod, you should do it. And if, if, if we need to, we'll talk about it after the fact. So. Well, this is kind of an, a, a new idea in documentarian work because traditionally you're supposed to be like this cold outside lens when you're presenting your subject so that you can be non-objective but you know you're intimately involved with this story this is your story as much as it is Jonas's story and as much as it is your father's story so do you feel like having it be so personal to you helps in the documentation of of this story or do you think it is another hurdle Mm. well I am trained as a journalist and a photographer so objectivity once upon a time was a very high bar that I held and I do still hold that high bar for other kinds of films but this film is a memoir it Mm -hmm. is a documentary but it's a documentary memoir and I think it has a different has different rules of engagement (laughs) both with your audience and with your subject and so I just didn't let objectivity really be a word that world in my head I think I had to think about where my son and my father kind of fit and Beethoven sort of fit in the scheme of deafness as we know it today and as we knew it historically but I was really trying to just tell a very subjective personal story that I think goes well beyond deafness I think our audience for this film the vast majority of our audience for this film can be and should be people who know nothing about deafness and wouldn't think to sit down for 90 minutes and watch a movie about deaf people. Because it's really about family, it's about the creative process, and it's about all the things in our lives that seem to be crippling us that are actually strengthening us. And is it something like when you start on this endeavor, I mean, you must have some sort of conversation with your family that you all get on the same page before you ever start telling the story with the camera in, in, involved? I wish I could say that's true. There was no big sit-down family dinner where I said, okay, people, so next week I'd like to start doing this. It was really more of a process that started when Jonas was a baby, and it started before I even knew he was going deaf. So... Mm. Because I'm such an obsessive documentarian, because I have a production company where I own equipment and I have these resources at my disposal, I have been documenting my kids their entire upbringing. So once we knew that we wanted to make a film because Jonas was learning this particular sonata, 
then we just sort of engaged into a higher gear. But it really didn't change what I've been doing their whole upbringing, which is just constantly documenting things. So it was really more of a slow creep <laughs> than it was a, you know, a, an embarking on something that was very formal. And what does Jonas think of the movie? Jonas likes it. Uh, he has really only seen it a few times here at Sundance. And he's, uh, I think he's very engaged in the rest of his life. And he's not, um, he, he, like, for example, we had a screening late last night and he just decided he would come to the Q&A. He's not, uh, he's not, for whatever reason, he's 13 years old now. And he's not fascinated by seeing himself up on the screen. He's, he's rolling with us, he, you know, but I think he's, uh, he's someone who will handle the attention he's getting from this. I think he will handle it well because he does not want to be a celebrity necessarily. He does not want to uh, watch himself all day. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I, think, uh, I think that as a mother, of course, I'm very careful about protecting him. And, you know, we hope this film is going to have a long life. Um, we're going to be on the festival circuit this year, and it will go on to HBO within the next year or so. And we really want him to engage and have fun in the process of telling his story to people and performing music for them. So we're kind of trying to take it slow. One aspect of the story that was very close to my heart was his interactions with his piano teacher. Because I myself, I, I started piano when I was five. I am now a piano teacher. And so I was just curious, Amazing. what is Jonas studying today? Does he still play after this very frustrating and arduous process? Yeah, he, he does play. Good. And he's improving and getting better and uh, he's he's very engaged in music I think he's engaged in other things too he's engaged in his social life he's engaged in video gaming and uh, music is also I, what I tell him is that if he sticks with the music the music will be a forever friend it'll mm-hmm. be someone it'll be something it'll be an experience that he can always lean on because he's trained himself at a young age to understand music and play notes and you know so i i hope he sticks with it for now i think the plan is he will <laughs> is he still with the same teacher he is in fact she is here at sunday oh how cool she came to our premiere screening yeah one of the uh aspects that i i really connected to was when your mother is having the conversation with the doctor about you know uh, how her DNA is an alphabet and that there's this typo and your mother responds you know no it's not a typo you know because it's who she is and we often think of deafness as a subtraction of normalcy Um, and, and the idea that you know deafness as we knew it with your parents is not going to be the same as it is with your son, and that 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 type of deafness might be fading. Uh, you know, like, can you speak a little bit to that idea, and maybe even how your son is feeling towards that idea? Yeah, I don't. To, to be to be honest, I don't think my son thinks about 
his deafness in a larger sort of political or scientific way. But I do think that because he wears cochlear implants, his deafness has had a certain medical component to it. He grew up going to a lot of doctors, doing a lot of speech therapy, doing a lot of audiology appointments, doing this brain mapping that comes with the cochlear implantation. But I don't think he thinks about it in a sort of existential way. I think my mother, oddly, doesn't really either. She just simply does not see her deafness as a medical condition. So when the doctor told her that, rather it was a genetic counselor, when the genetic counselor told her that, she wasn't pushing back in a political fashion. When she when she said, well, you're calling, you're calling this gene a typo, but really the gene is just what it is. And I was so, as a daughter, I was filming that. And I remember as a daughter, I felt so proud of her because it showed me that she accepts and loves who she is. And it doesn't discount the fact that her life has been difficult due to her deafness. I think that her life has also been greatly defined and enriched by her deafness. And that is really the theme of this film. If you think about Beethoven and his music, I really believe that Beethoven made the music he did, not in spite of his deafness, but because of his deafness. Mm -hmm. I think my mother and father became the people they did, not in spite of their deafness, again, but because they were very defined by this experience. And they taught me to not only be filmmaker, because they are both photographers and filmmakers themselves, but they also were letting me know that this was just a way of being and a way of living. So when Jonas developed deafness, I knew that I wanted to give him the choice to turn his hearing on and off and the implant would give that to him. But we knew from a medical standpoint, you have to implant a child early enough in life so that their brain can kind of take over and create a normal auditory reflex, you know? And so that's why we made the choice we did. And sure enough now, getting into his teenage years, he likes to wear his implant and he also likes times where he turns off. He's finally figured out that he has a superpower, mm-hmm. but it took him a while. Mm. Well, Irene, thank you so much for taking the time to chatting with us today. Uh, Like I said earlier, we really uh, found the film quite moving, and we're excited for you to take it out on the festival circuit, and we're looking forward to watching it on HBO. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Yay. Thank you, Irene. Really appreciate the time uh, for this conversation And Lisa, I got to throw it back to you right away because one of the highlights of this chat for me is hearing you ask the question about the piano teacher. Because as you say in the interview, you're a piano teacher yourself. You had some serious thoughts about the role of the piano teacher specifically in Moonlight Sonata. Well, Jonas's piano teacher definitely takes a different approach than I do. I was raised in the Mr. Rogers, everyone's special, everybody's doing the best they can, let's give everybody a participation trophy style of teaching. And the idea of giving a 10-year-old boy one piece to work on (laughs) and just go like, this is all we're working working on and uh, I'm going to keep kicking you back to the curb. (laughs) Oh, and the thing that she does with the strikes, like when he would play the piece... 
she and he would make a mistake she would say strike one strike two (laughs) i was mortified and the fact that jonas is still with that teacher i think is a testament to his doggedness Mm -hmm. and how he is not ready to let the moonlight sonata go Uh But, oh, man, like with my temperament as a little piano student, I never would have been able to handle that. And that is not how I treat my students. You can't quite hear it in the interview. But when she says that Jonas is still with that piano. I'm shocked. You were shocked. shocked. I was staring Lisa directly in the face and you were aghast. Yeah. (laughs) I've got to say I've never had a piano piano student drop me. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I, I think... It's just a different approach. Yeah, total different philosophy. Absolutely. And it was totally not how I was raised. Sure, but you were kind of hoping that he had found a new piano teacher. I did. I totally (laughs) did. Oh, gosh. Well, anyway, go find Moonlight Sonata. Like we said, it's playing in theaters right now and it will be coming to HBO. HBO, man, they are killing it with the documentaries. I just like. Honestly, you know, I love Game of Thrones. Well, you know, the, that last season. Oh, 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 oh. Controversy. Uh, I, I, I loved Westworld. Oh, gosh, that second season I'm not so sure about. <laughs> I, I love a lot of the original programming that they're doing. But for me, the reason I stay subscribed to HBO is for their documentaries. Mm-hmm. There are so many great films to experience, and Moonlight Sonata is one of them. Uh, all right. So... As we said at the start of the episode, we are currently packing to go to Austin, Texas to partake in the Fantastic Fest Film Festival. And Lisa, we have some interviews already scheduled. I don't feel comfortable just yet revealing who they are because I don't want to jinx the situation. But how All ex- my fingers and toes are crossed. But how excited are you? Soups. Super excited. And this is going to be our second Fantastic Fest Third. together. Oh, no, you're right. This is our third Fantastic Fest. Yes, this is the one where we get laid. Oh, 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 boy. We're on a third date with Fantastic Fest. Third date with Fantastic Fest. Well, this is a good one for that because Takashi Miike is going to be in town. Ooh, he's going to get lucky. Yeah, Uh, lots and lots of awesome filmmakers. Uh, If you go over to the In the Mouth of Darkness regular feed on Friday, we're going to be dropping our most anticipated films of not only Fantastic Fest, but also Lost Weekend 12, which is happening at the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia. Yes. ItMod is going to be broken up between two festivals this year. We're going to miss each other terribly. We are, but we're going to have so much content and we're going to bring you multiple, multiple, multiple conversations from both film festivals. Get your body ready. Get your body ready. And on Friday, we're going to be dropping our most anticipated films of Lost Weekend 12 and Fantastic Fest. Lisa, do you feel comfortable giving a tease of what one of the films you're most excited to see at Fantastic Fest this year? Hmm. Well, two of the films that are in my five also were on my most anticipated of the fall. Oh, you can spoil that. What are they, Lisa? I know what they are. Uh, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. And knives out. Knives out. out. <laughs> I was like, what was the other one? <laughs> knives out. Don't Lisa. worry. I used the same slot for both of those films. <laughs> so you still get four other films from me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's see. Uh, off the top of my head, I guess I'm going to go with Takashi Mike with First Love. Uh, I'm a huge Mike fan. I obsessed over Mike back in college, as did Lisa. Weirdly. Weirdly. Mike doesn't seem like a, a, a Lisa type of filmmaker, but. Yeah, you had a fling. I did. 
Yeah. I did. All right. So, yeah, stay tuned. Follow all our dorks. You want to do that because we are covering everything. Check all their Instagram feeds. Follow the indie dork, Billy Das, at WB Das. Follow Darren Smith, at the Disco Dork. Follow Brian Young, at the Turtle Dork. Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? At Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And are you going to be letterboxing during Fantastic Fest? I'm going to be letterboxing up and down the street, even though I haven't even touched my letterbox in months. Months, maybe even a year. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not good about the social meds. Uh, you can follow me at MouthDork on all social medias. And next week, we are bringing you a conversation from the Toronto International Film Festival that's via phone. Ooh, yeah. that's very exciting. We're talking to Alvaro Longoria, the director of Sanctuary. Uh, he basically took a camera with him down to Antarctica with Greenpeace and Javier Bardem and Carlos Bardem, and they documented the entire experience, and it is a really, really interesting movie. That is twice the Bardem. Twi- double Bardem. Ugh. So come back next Wednesday. Even though we're going to be at Fantastic Fest, we're still going to be dropping new chat casts. So double Bardem Wednesday. Be there. Be square. Don't be square. Yeah. All right. Get uh, your mind right. Get your mind right. Until next time, guys. Take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 